Good morning, fellowship. Well, we can do better than that. The rain is on the outside. Good morning, fellowship. I, um, the last couple of weeks I've been battling some boy stuff and health stuff, and each Sunday I've gotten here, I've said, okay, I need to remember not to sing um, during the singing part, so I have some voice. When it comes time for me to speak. Um, But each week, as we get going, I always forget. And um, it's because the words that we sing actually tell about truth. Um, For those of you that, that are aware, there was a school shooting a couple of days ago. And it was actually just a few miles from where Trisha and I just moved from. And so as my friend started to text me and started to tell me about what was happening, there was a lot of people who walked into that school that day or they put their kids out of their car that morning thinking they had another day. And there were some who picked their kids up wondering, why was my kid spared? It was for freedom that you set free. Our stories are not our own. And each and every opportunity we get to share about the goodness of Christ is valuable. It was on the same morning that I got those texts and and accounts that people were safe. There was an article released that said that 79% of non-Christians if invited by their friends who were Christians, would come to a church service. But only 39% of Christians has shared the gospel in the last six months. Each day matters. Each opportunity we get to share about a relationship with our Father through the death, burial, and resurrection of his Son matters. I hope we take full advantage of that opportunity. Today, as I speak, you'll see some page numbers on the screen. Those page numbers will correlate to the blue Bibles that are in uh, your seats. If you don't have a Bible, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible or doesn't have one that's easy for them to read, then please take that one and give it to them as a gift from the both of us. Um, Our focal passage for this morning comes from the first chapter of the book of Ruth. The Bible is made up of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And and I promise y'all we're going to get to the New Testament. Right now we're still in the Old. Ruth is in the Old. Um, Our focal passage is found on page 160. And I'm going to take a little bit more time this morning in the reading portion, and, and I'm going to give you a larger portion of this beautiful, beautiful story that is found here in this book. So starting with the first verse of the first chapter of Ruth on page 160 of those blue Bibles, if you're using those or on the app, if you have that, here's what it says. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, A severe famine came upon the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Remember here at Fellowship High Christian, when you read, it's whatever you say it is. So if it's John, then it's John, and we're all cool with that. Just remember who's John and who's Betsy. That's all we say. All right. Their two sons was Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a man, a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone with her two, uh, without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness um, to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said. We, won't go with, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should we go on? Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. My daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is, that, is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. And instead, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? This is God's word. The book of Ruth is thought to be one of the most beautiful short stories, one of the most fascinating and important short stories that's ever been written. Why? Because in it, God shows 
that he can even transform the heart of a mother-in-law. It's <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, he, he does show that in the book, but he, he also tells us so much more in this passage. As a piece of literature, even non-Christians marvel at the beauty of this piece. And although the book is named Ruth, the main character of the plot um, is actually Naomi. Ruth means friendship or comfort or refreshment, where the name Naomi means my pleasantness. One of the things that burns me up, though, in life is this, is when people make snap judgments or characterizations of others without knowing the full story, without knowing the full uh, episode of what really took place and the contributing factors of what really went in to what happened. And I fear that if I don't set this up for us this morning, that we'll walk away with a moral story that demonizes Naomi and makes it hard for us to empathize with those around us who may be going through something. So let me help set this up. Naomi and her husband were from Bethlehem and of the tribe of Judah. Why is this important? This is important because in the ancients, they believed that a deity only had power in the locale of his worshipers. So therefore, to leave one's um, land meant to separate from one's God. Why would a guy named Elimelech, whose name literally means God is my king, choose to take his wife and his family and leave the presence of his God. Well, here's why. There was a famine in Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So there was no bread in the house of bread. Now, when you read throughout Scripture, you come to Psalm 108 and you see that Moab is referred to as God's trash can. So what Elimelech and Naomi were saying was they were saying that it was better to go eat and live in the trash can than to be in the house of their God. What would drive them to this decision, though? God had promised the Israelites that if they departed from him, that he would send a famine to discipline them upon the promised land. And this story takes place in the time of the judges. And so uh, the fact that there was a lack of leadership and the nation found itself in trouble again was nothing new. It was a continual cycle, and Naomi and her husband had had enough of it. They were tired of it. They were through with it. They wanted better for their family. And here's the thing, though. Many of you may be hearing that and maybe read that, and you might start drawing lines to our country or to a certain neighborhood, and if you do that, I feel that you would be in error because that's not the equivalent of what this was saying. The fact that Bethlehem had a bad reputation and Naomi's family was leaving Bethlehem was not them giving up on uh, being fed up with a certain neighborhood. It was the equivalent of a family in our day being so fed up with the church and all of its mess and all the seemingly unending trials and circumstances in their life and and God seemingly being uh, silent in the midst of their suffering and not changing the situation that they were in, that they said that we're through. It's better to be secular than to be Christian. Naomi's name meant pleasantness, but but her life as a, a wife and a mother was everything but pleasant. In those days that you were named according to your character, Naomi named her kids sickly and failing. Her kids had health problems. The last thing a mother wants is 
kids with health problems. And, and the last thing that she wants to see in a kid needs with pre-existing health problems is to also be malnourished. The last thing that a husband wants to see is his family struggling and going hungry and suffering um, physical illnesses. Naomi moved to the good neighborhood, but it seemed that trouble seemed to follow her wherever she went. Her husband died and women couldn't own property and that left her insecure. When God gave the Israelites this promise of security of rest, it was actually a promise of security. So she had no security. Her her sons married foreign wives. That was not God's plan for his people. Her sons died and, and, and... there were no male heirs to even keep ownership of the family land that they were granted as a part of the promise. And she was too old to have any more kids. And, and she couldn't provide security for her daughters-in-laws through any other traditional means. And there she was in this situation. Her only choice was to go back to the messy church, having lost what she left to try to keep. And she was like, well, what the heck? I have nothing else to lose. I might as well go back. And I know I'm going to have to put up with a lot of stuff and a lot of mess because that's what they are. They're messy. But I might as well go back anyway. And you know what? Here's the deal. These young girls don't deserve to go through everything that I've been through. So what I'm going to do, the most loving thing for me to do, the wise thing is for me to send them away, to give them a new start where they don't have to deal with all the mess that my life brings with it. On top of that, this will help save me from having to go through all the questions that my wife and that my sons married foreign wives because I got enough struggle in my life. So this will save me. I'm going to go back. And after knowing what only seemed to be continuous struggle and suffering with no ability to change her or her daughter-in-law's circumstances, she decided to go back to the church. She went back feeling like my life is terrible and I might as well go back because they can't make my life any worse than it's already been to this point. One of the most prolific psalmists and poets and missiologists of our time, while on a song with another down south prognosticator, said the following. There's going to be some stuff you're going to see that's going to make it hard to smile in the future. To help us learn how to be able to smile through whatever we see, through all the rain and all the pain, I've invited my friends Andrea Vincent and Paige Wynn to come and share their story with us this morning. Would you please welcome them up? So what would y'all guys give, what, what's your guys, what role do you play here at Fellowship? Um, yeah, so my name is Andrea Vincent. I'm, I'm one of the connection coordinators with my husband, Tim. Hello, I'm Paige Wynn. I'm the family ministry coordinator, so I get to hang out with your guys' children and youth here at Fellowship High Christ. All right, and so growing up, and, and I've been asking this each week of um, everyone, growing up. What did you think about who God was and what he had done and, and what role did, did he play in your life growing up? Yeah, um, so I was raised Catholic. I went to church every Sunday. Um, I learned about who God was, um, but I don't think he really became real to me 
until I started spending a lot of time with my cousin Leah, um, and I just kind of saw through getting um, to be with her and through her life um, what it looked like to have a relationship um, actively pursuing him and on fire for him, um, and I knew that I wanted that, and so that's kind of when I started to read God's word and find community. So, um, I was raised in the church. I grew up in Topeka in a Southern Baptist church, and so I um, went to church as a little girl, and um, that was a big part of our family, um, but I think for me, I went to a Christian camp called Canacuck when I was um, going into my eighth grade year, and it had always been something I'd went to and I'd heard about, but uh, one of my counselors encouraged me to actually read God's word, and that's when, for me, it all became real, and I would say I had a relationship with Christ. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about middle schoolers and high schoolers, um, is because that was just a really important time in my life. Yeah, and so um, both of you suffer from endometriosis. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means and the effects that come with it? Yeah, so I got this question because I'm an, also a nurse. Um, but endometriosis is um, a chronic illness that only affects women, so I'll keep it to the basics for all y'all who don't like gory things. Um, but it's when Thank the you. inside of your uterus grows outside in your abdominal cavity on all of your organs. So what comes with it is chronic pain, chronic fatigue, a lot of um, bowel and bladder problems, and a whole other slew of things. If you think you have it, come talk to me after. We can go more in depth. But um, it affects you every day, um, and it's not something that um, really leaves you. All right. And so how long have y'all two uh, had it, and, and is it curable? Or? Um, I was diagnosed in July of 2016 with endo. I went to the doctor um, thinking maybe my appendix had ruptured or something um, and found out I had endo then. But I have had endo and, like, um, symptoms of endo since I was in high school um, for a long time. So, Yeah, it's a nasty disease. It takes um, 10 years to get diagnosed, and actually one in 10 women is affected. So my story is similar to hers. I, um, I've had endo since I was 17 years old, but I wasn't diagnosed until I was 27 years old. And um, I actually got my appendix out for no reason, because they thought it needed to come out, but actually it was fine. Um, it was actually just the endo causing <coughs> the pain. So we're talking about some serious pain, but um, that was my first diagnosis. My second diagnosis came um, last summer when I saw a specialist in St. Louis, and I was diagnosed with stage four endo, which is like the worst stage that you can have. Um, I think one of the questions was how we felt about that, and um, yeah, that was shocking, but also really grateful at the same time because I knew I wasn't crazy um, for going through all of these things I had gone through for over 10 years. I think you could probably feel that way, too. Yeah. So no cure? Did we answer that? Yeah. yeah. And so, that, um, yeah, you kind of answered that my next question of um, what were your thoughts when you were first diagnosed? And so what, what about you, Andrea? What? Yeah, so I think. When I was first diagnosed, I was kind of in denial. Like, I knew that I had endo, and I was okay with that. I just don't think I was ready to accept, like, what that actually meant for my life and, like, how it would affect, like, me every day and stuff. And I think once I realized that, um, I was, like, just kind of angry um, and feeling like this isn't what I wanted. Um, 
and just kind of like afraid I think of like what that meant for my future. Yeah. So how has, speaking of what you just said, how has your diagnosis changed the plans and the visions that you've had for your family before being diagnosed? Like when you, you grew up thinking about being married and, and, and all that came with it, how has endo changed that? Um, I think, well, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a mom to um, precious, like, biological kids and um, kids through adoption. And so I think for me now, I, I still want that. And knowing um, the possibility of infertility with endo and things like that, I think the Lord's just been really working in my heart on um, just, like, the fear of that. And I'm still, like, working um, through stuff like that, but I think he's growing in me and just teaching me that, um, regardless of what the future looks like, that he has good things for me. Um, and yeah, it'll all work out. Same question. I think, um, like Andrea said, I think when you're a little girl, you dream about the kids you're going to have and the happy life you're going to have. And I just pictured like, I'm going to have so many babies, and they're going to just be running around. And, I mean, nobody hopes for daily pain. That's not something you plan for your life. But I think um, that has been the hardest thing is just a lot of emotional pain that comes with, um, okay, God, I really don't like these circumstances. This is not what I would have for my life um, in that choice. So um, that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. And how did, when you were diagnosed, and as you go through the pain, how has it affected your relationship with God and others? And and how hard has it been not to become bitter as you endure um, the things that come along with your diagnosis? Yeah. um, I think at first, I mean, at first, I kind of saw this sometimes, but I think, (laughs) I think I'm really quick to pretend like I'm doing better than I'm doing um, around people. Also, I cry a lot, so just (laughs) get ready. Um, But um, I feel like I tend to um, tell people that I'm doing better than they're doing, than I'm doing, and I, like, when I'm stuck in my bed or in my couch just feeling really bad, I think I get um, really down, and I have, like, a lot of pity parties and just can get to really feeling sorry for myself, and I think... That's been really negative because all the tools that the Lord wants to give me to be able to battle this, I'm basically, like, um, shutting aside, you know, authentic community um, as well as just, like, prayer with him. And so I think he's been really growing me in um, relying on his strength and just um, in my times of resting, learning how to um, gain strength from him instead of just really believing the lies that Satan tells us. Yeah, I think it's similar. Um, It affects relationships with others so much. I mean, my first go-to is run away and isolate myself because it's very, um, makes you feel like people don't understand. Like, you look, we look fine, but we're, like, fighting a daily battle, and it's exhausting. And so it's really tempting just to go hide under a blanket and be on the couch. Um, But I think... The Lord has shown me that I need other people to take care of me, but also to be in community. That's healthy. And then with the Lord, just our relationship, it's just 
been every emotion and everything. It's just a journey. Um, I've been angry. I've been sad. I've been frustrated. I've thrown a lot of temper tantrums. I've hit rock bottom. I think um, bitterness is so tempting because it's something that just kind of wants to grow around your heart and just grab it. But like understanding that I can't fight that on my own, that I need God to keep me from getting bitter. Um, and when I, when I finally realized that and to tell him that I don't like what's going on, but I still trust you. I think that's been really freeing for me, for me to, um, understand kind of through the journey, but it's definitely process. It's definitely a grief process and just a day-to-day decision to wake up hit the floor and to trust God with your day. Yeah. So how, um, knowing when you first found out that you were both diagnosed, you suffered from the same thing, what was that like and, and how have you been able to support one another as you walked through this? Um, Paige is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm sure maybe for both of us, I just felt like I wasn't crazy and I wasn't alone um, and like Someone understood me. That was really good. Um, I also, oh, support. Um, Paige, yeah, Paige is really great. Like, one time, um, I, like, couldn't get off my couch, and I was feeling super terrible. And Paige just, like, bought me gluten-free pretzels and came and rubbed my back. Like, um, yeah, I just think community in that aspect has been cool. Second that I think knowing that whatever struggle you're facing, whether it's mental illness or drug addiction or abuse or whatever, just having somebody else who understands what you're going through can build you up and pray for you, can you can be real with so you don't feel like you're hiding. I think that's the biggest thing for sure. How's your how's your role here at High Crest helped you as you continue to kind of walk and take your next step in life and kind of work through um, your own problems and situations. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, I think for me, the Lord has given me high crest or put me in high crest um, just to give me like a passion and a purpose um, to get up and keep going. Um, I think he's, I just feel like he's nailed my feet here um, for a reason and there's work to be done for his glory. Um, I'm super thankful that he's brought me here. Um, I also have a lot of really awesome girls um, that I hang out with at the Fortress. Well, I've met at the Fortress and hang out with. um, And I'm really excited to see their lives and how he works through that um, in our relationships. So, yeah. So, Highcrest means everything to me. And the people here have kept me going, whether they know it or not. Um, God has given me hope and a purpose when I want to give up. He tells me that there's people that love me and that um, it is just a place that I love and that I wouldn't miss out on this for anything. And so I'm just super grateful to have um, you guys in my life every week and and every day. And so... um God could heal you, very well could heal you, um, but what if your physical situation never changes? I think um, the flesh inside of me is like, uh, no, 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 I can't, like, I can't do it, but I think 
that's like a really perfect opportunity to be able to rely on him um, and ask him for strength and just continue to go to him every day um, with things like that. I know whether it's now or um, in heaven, the Lord will give me a healthy body. Um, and just remembering that like um, he'll use it for his purpose here. Yeah, same thing. I mean, God can do anything. He can do the impossible, and he could heal us in one second. He can heal you too, but I think um, it's really cool to picture when I go to heaven and I get to see his face that, like, I, I, I made my commitment that I will love you no matter what, and I will trust you. And when I see his face, it's all going to be clear as to why. And so I think that's really beautiful, no matter what we're feeling. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrea and Paige, for just coming up and sharing your story and being vulnerable and candid. Would y'all give them a hand? You know, anyone who tells you that this sin-riddled world and the brokenness in it hadn't got to them. They're either lying or they're too broken to realize it. Suffering and brokenness is not an option. It's not avoidable. But bitterness is. Jesus made this really clear in John 16, when he says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart because I have overcome the world. While suffering and trials are inevitable, bitterness is not. But there is a surefire road that leads to bitterness, and here's what it is. Number one, you run from your problems. Famines, and according to the biblical record, usually advance God's people and his plan for his people despite their tragic appearances. So when we flee God and his people to church, In the midst of suffering, we're halting the progress of God for and in our own lives because he always works in spite of the circumstances and situations that we may find ourselves in. Often all we can see is the back of the tapestry. We can't see the beautiful picture he's creating on the other side. The next one, hide your mistakes. Naomi's mistake was not getting married and not having a family. Naomi's mistake was concentrating on earthly situations instead of heavenly sources in the midst of her trials. The Bible teaches us over and over again that everything in life can be traced back to the hand of God. And therefore, when we go through suffering and pain and trials, we should draw closer to God instead of fleeing from his presence. Naomi thought that there was more hope in sending her daughter-in-laws back to their earthly moms and earthly families than encouraging them to come with her to the presence of her God. When what you can manipulate in a situation becomes a better option than calling on and out to a God who promises his presence in the situation, you're rounding third towards bitterness. And number three, you blame God for your trials. Blame God for your trials. In verse 21, Naomi accuses God by his covenant name, Yahweh. 
She was saying, the things I have suffered, the things I've gone through are because of a broken promise by God. When we stop believing that God is for us, bitterness is the only place that suffering can lead us. When we stop believing that God is for us, bitterness is the only place that God can lead us. Because of the root of bitterness in her life, the root of bitterness that had taken stake in her heart, she couldn't see any of the blessings of God in her life. All she could see was the missed expectations. She couldn't see that she didn't come home empty. She came home with a daughter-in-law who loved her and, and pledged her life to her. She couldn't see that she left in a famine but came home in a harvest. All she could see was her missed expectations. And get this. Get this. When Abraham decided to follow God, he decided to follow God because of a promise that God gave him. Ruth was a Gentile. Ruth had no promises, and she pledged her life to go with her friend and follow God. How can you be empty when you got somebody like that walking beside you? When bitterness sets in, it keeps us from seeing anything positive in our lives. Negative thinking does not honor God. And and I know many of us have grown up in negative environments that makes it hard for us to see anything positive in, in ways that God may be blessing us. And it's something that we need to work on corporately and individually. Bitterness is not our only option in the midst of suffering. In the midst of pain and suffering, we can either take the path toward bitterness or we can become a channel of blessing. It was Ruth's faith in Yahweh and her commitment to his people that made her usable. Ruth was a descendant of Lot. Lot left the land when he got uncomfortable. Naomi was a um, descendant of Abraham who stayed, but it was not their family history that determined how they responded when hard times hit. It was their faith. Ruth returned right at the wrong of her ancestors, and her friendship turned in once bitter old lady into probably the greatest mother-in-law that has ever been recorded. That's what friendship can do. And when suffering tells us to withdraw from biblical community, love tells us to lean in and be harder. Wisdom would have told Ruth to leave her mother-in-law just like Opal did. But love told her to linger. Will your inevitable suffering embitter you or will it empower you? You will suffer, but you can choose. Will it embitter you or will it empower you? And if it's the latter, then there's only one hope. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we get him when we do what we call stepping across the line of faith. We step across the line of faith when we realize that God has a standard and none of us meet it. But when we were at our worst, he sent his son to die for us. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection alone that we have access to a relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's by that alone. If you've never made that commitment and you're still trying to work this thing out for yourself and, and maybe bitterness is beginning to step, step in and take root in your life, I want to invite you to pray with me this morning in just a few seconds. No special words, no special order of words. It's a prayer of thanks. If you have stepped over the line of faith, your first steps back toward 
the house of bread, towards the family of God, is to identify with him publicly through baptism. If that's your next step, then mark it on your cord. Put it in the um, offering. Let us talk to you and help you take that step. If you are a baptized believer, then I got a couple of questions for you. If suffering is inevitable, that means that somebody in your family, somebody that you work with, somebody that you go to school with, somebody that's probably sitting right around you right now is going through something significant in their life that is struggling, that is having trials right now. So here's the question. Which one of them will be able to look back and say, like Naomi, that it was your faith in God and your commitment to God's people that helped them avoid the pathway to bitterness? Which one of them, who around you will be able to say that it was your friendship that taught them how to use their struggle to become a channel of blessing for others when life dealt them a situation that they couldn't handle? And it seemed unfair. It's real easy to judge people when they're going through something. But like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though life throws punches that we don't sometimes understand, that makes it hard for us to trust you that you continue to love us. In spite of all our flaws, in spite of all our fickleness, in spite of our desire to run away, to to flee, to um, reject you, you still accept us. You still welcome us in. You still call us your own. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move that you would use the friendship of others that do know you to impress upon their life just how great it is to be in a relationship with you. Not necessarily because of how the situation may change, but because of the relationship they gain. So, Father, we thank you and we love you. We praise you. In your darling son Jesus' name, amen.